This is a Federal News Network podcast. 2022 was another busy year for Federal Chief Information Security Officers and cybersecurity teams across the government. It started with the cleanup from the mess of the Log J-4 and continues with a flurry of new guidance, binding operational directives, and you name it. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. Justin, let's start with one of the most famous vulnerabilities that struck the federal government and just about everybody else in this past year, and that was Log4j. What happened and what's the status of it now? Yeah, that's right. The uh, Log4j vulnerability in the popular open source Java library was actually discovered late in 2021, and it kept security teams busy through the holidays. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency started off the year by briefing folks on the cleanup from that effort. And, you know, they said that while they did a good job finding it in high-priority systems across government, that it was going to continue to haunt systems for many months to come, at least. The Cyber Safety Review Board, uh, that new board at the Department of Homeland Security, did its first ever review on Log4j and really echoed that message, saying it would continue to crop up for years to come, potentially up to a decade. And this is an important vulnerability because it's uh, easy to exploit and it gives attackers critical access to those systems. This all came to fruition, really, when CISA put out an alert in in November saying that over the summer, Iranian-backed hackers used Log4j to compromise the network of a federal civilian agency, which it did not identify, but the Washington Post later reported it was the Merit Systems Protection Board. So really, Log4j dominated the year, dominated security folks' minds. Interesting that they would go after the Merit Systems Protection Board and not, you know, CISA right. <laughs> or the National Security Agency or something, or at least maybe they did. They just don't tell us about it. Right. That whole incident underscored, though, that push for secure software development. I mean, I think agencies have been talking about that for many years, but this kind of pushed that along higher up in the, uh, I guess, hierarchy of priorities? Yeah, it certainly put some urgency behind that push. And and this was something that started, as you mentioned, well before 2022. But in September, OMB released this uh, new guidance on secure software development for agencies, really a big marker in the sand for how agencies will now have to develop software going forward. And it applies to their use of third-party software, so software they buy, and that affects the vast array of contractors that sell to the government, of course. You know, it it requires them to essentially verify uh, that these contractors have used secure software development practices. doesn't require any sort of auditing or anything like that, but that could be something that agencies explore in the future. Software bills of material, another thing that agencies could explore in the future under this effort. Right. And I think this whole thing kind of cast a little bit of a eye, a gimlet eye on open source, which was just given as the way to go. But now we know that open source sources have vulnerabilities that have to be checked also. That's right. You hear that if you peel back any sort of commercial software out there, it really rests on a foundation of com- of open source. And, uh, you know, the White House has held an open source summit this past year, really casting an eye toward uh, – supporting the open source security a little bit more going forward, considering it's foundational to so much IT. Yeah, maybe they could use open source to develop an application for the open border, but that's another issue. And in the past year, you could not really swing a dead cat without hitting somebody talking about zero trust. Yeah, I mean, you you turn into our station, and of course, we've been covering that pretty, pretty closely. Uh, But in, in January, the White House released the official federal zero trust strategy, 
covering a range of different cybersecurity pillars and what makes up a zero-trust architecture, really a significant emphasis on multi-factor authentication and identity and access controls. That's a big push across agencies. Um, And it sets a requirement for agencies to achieve zero-trust architecture of some sort by the end of fiscal 2024. So there's a lot of uh, push across agencies to not just adopt the zero-trust term, but to actually put it into play and across their networks. And as more things come on to networks, even virtual machines that might be running in an edge computing environment and have to access something in a central data center or a cloud, zero trust applies to not just human beings trying to get through, but any kind of data call, any kind of interaction, application programming interface call from any entity. And it could be another software entity or an Internet of Things piece of hardware somewhere. These all have to be part of the zero trust kind of scheme too, don't they? That's right. You, you hear folks refer to them as, uh, as non-human. Um, not, that, that issue is non-human identity. Essentially, there are machines out there pulling data. The Internet of Things has led to a lot of inter- internet connections. And folks say that, you know, zero trust is a necessary paradigm in a world where everything's interconnected. And the idea of, as you mentioned a moment ago, the identity and credential access management, all of this development towards zero trust, that's also important as agencies head toward better customer experience. And you want people to be logging on to federal applications and so on that are public facing. That's got to be zero trust, too, without driving people crazy. That's right. The uh, the federal zero trust strategy doesn't just pertain to internal agency networks and what employees are using, but it also has a section on public facing systems. It requires multi-factor authentication for public facing systems. Really, you're seeing a lot of agencies adopt login.gov run by the General Services Administration to really get to a single sign-on for government services, and that's a push that you're going to see continue probably over the next year. Yeah, less friction and ease of use is really, I think agencies have been saying, have got to be a part of access that is secure. Otherwise, it's like paragoric. You know, it's good for you, but all you want to do is spit it out and find a workaround. Yeah, and you'll certainly see a lot of groups raise red flags when you're uh, shutting down access to government services uh, through through sort of unnecessary security rigmarole. Right, and throwing something through your laptop and smashing it doesn't do a thing for the government <laughs> system that wouldn't let you in. And the Defense Department has its own zero-trust strategy. That's right. It revealed that zero trust strategy right before Thanksgiving. I got to cover that on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Uh, but it's a really detailed strategy and roadmap that the Defense Department laid out for all of their components to adopt the same zero trust architecture. It broke it down into 45 separate capabilities organized around seven pillars, really classic DOD detailed document here. And they're looking to get to a really mature, what they call mature level of zero trust um, by about 2027, where you're kind of organized around these different security pillars. They're also looking at commercial cloud pretty closely. They want to adopt commercial cloud across the Defense Department. And one of the interesting things they're doing is working with commercial cloud providers on some zero-trust pilots here over the next year. And, of course, they awarded the JWCC set of contracts. Those haven't really rolled out operationally yet, but that's something we'll be keeping an eye on in the year ahead. And finally, cybersecurity of critical infrastructure talked about since 9-11, actually 25 years before that in some sense. But now that's really become front and center, and you see action there. 
Yeah. Back in uh, March, Congress passed the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act. And these are landmark requirements that will require entities across 16 critical infrastructure sectors to report cyber incidents to the government within three days um, and actually ransomware payments within 24 hours. They're going to have to report to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And I say will because CISA now has to embark on a or is embarking on a very lengthy rulemaking period here that will last uh, through potentially 2024 before these requirements become a reality. CISA released a, a request for information earlier this year to start getting some feedback on on these requirements that will really affect every sector of the economy. So that's something where there's a lot of action this year, but there's plenty more to come. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should 
you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yep. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization what mrs Tri mrs shriver was trying to do uh was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities and you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together we still have traditional uh teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams all intellectual disabilities but this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot i think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh others with intellectual disabilities that's just like i mean that's what we 
that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.